Okay, we are, we're in a sermon series on the perfections of God. Another word for that is the attributes of God. We have a, um, on our website, we're calling them the perfections of God. Today is the holiness of God. And I don't think there's any more important message on all the attributes of God than this one. Uh, this deserves, every Christian in the world deserves to meditate on the holiness of God. They need to. So let's, let's stop and ask the Lord's blessing and his help. Lord, we're crying out to you right now to show us something of yourself. Lord, you are totally other than us. And it's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around all that you are. Nearly impossible but we pray that you'd give us a little bit greater understanding and that, that understanding of your holiness, Lord, would have an impact on our lives. It would have an impact on how we live. It would have an impact on how we forsake sin and how we tremble before you and how we run from it and how we hate it. We pray you would draw near right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So 2021 is the year that we are devoting to knowing and communing with God. And so we have set aside this year to study the perfections of God. And up to this point, we've been studying the incommunicable attributes of God. So do you understand what I mean by incommunicable? God can't communicate them to us because we can't experience certain attributes, like omnipresence. We can't experience that. We can't experience omniscience. We can't experience omnipotence, or God's triunity, or his self-existence, um, or his immutability, because we're none of those things. You know, in this lifetime, we're, we're never going to understand completely those things, because God is that way and we're not. But this morning, we're going to move on and begin to explore some of the communicable attributes of God. And by a communicable attribute, that's an attribute that God has that we can experience, at least in part, during this life. And I believe the most prominent and most important of all of those communicable attributes is His holiness. And so that's the very first one that we're going to delve into. Uh, the Puritan Stephen Sharnock wrote a book called The Existence and Attributes of God, two-volume work, massive work. Anyway, he, he wrote this. Power is God's arm. Omniscience, his eyes. Mercy, his bowels. Eternity, his duration. But holiness is his beauty. Holiness is the beauty of God. And so in order to think deeply about God's holiness, we're going to approach our subject under three headings. First of all, the meaning of holiness. And then secondly, the display of God's holiness. And then thirdly, the effects or the results of God's holiness in the life of the Christian. So first of all, let's get into the meaning of it. What, what do we mean when we say God is holy? And I'm going to give you a, a definition in two parts. Here's the first part. God's holiness consists of an inherent freedom from all evil. That's the first part. An inherent freedom from all evil. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
darkness in the Bible is often a metaphor for sin or for evil or for wickedness. In God, there is no darkness. There's no evil at all. There's no moral blemish in God. There's no spot. There's no stain. Like, just like our brother was telling us, he's perfect in all his ways. Morally perfect. The 19th century Presbyterian theologian Charles Hodge wrote like this. He said, holiness is a general term for the moral excellence of God. Holiness, on the one hand, implies entire freedom from moral evil, and on the other, absolute moral perfection. Freedom from impurity is the primary idea of the word. To sanctify is to cleanse. To be holy is to be clean. So God is clean. God is without stain. He's without blemish. He is without any evil at all. Now, a part of that definition is the word inherent. God's holiness consists of an inherent freedom from all evil. Now, what do we mean by inherent? We mean something that belongs to God by nature. In other words, God is not holy because he has decided that he's going to conform himself to some standard or some law outside of himself. That's not the way it works. God is not holy because he says, oh yeah, those Ten Commandments, that, that, those are really holy commandments. I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be just like that. That's not the way it works. God himself is the standard, and his law is just an outworking of his holy character. It's a reflection of who he is. God is not deciding to conform to a standard. God is the standard. God doesn't conform to the law in order to be holy. He is inherently holy. And the law is a manifestation of his holy character. God's not holy because he decides to be holy. God is holy because that's who he is. God cannot be anything other than holy and still be God. God would have to cease to be God in order to be unholy. You see? It's part of his essential nature. He would have to deny his own nature if he were anything other than absolutely and perfectly holy. Now, every other being in the universe derives their holiness from God. God has his of himself. It's part of his essential makeup. Like angels. There are holy angels. But they're not holy because they are inherently holy. They're, because some of those angels actually did rebel against God and sin. So it's possible for an angel to rebel and to do evil. Right? So it's not inherently something that is part of their character that they cannot be otherwise than. So if we have any creatures in this universe that are holy, it's because that's a gift of divine grace. And if God were to withdraw his grace and turn from them, they would fall from their holy condition into sin and corruption. We are dependent upon God for any measure of holiness in our lives. So that's the first part of the definition. God's holiness consists of an inherent freedom from all evil. Secondly, God's holiness consists of a love of righteousness and a hatred of evil. A love of righteousness and a hatred of all evil. Brian, can you prove that God actually hates evil? That's a strong word. Does he love righteousness? Well, let's look at a few passages in the, in the prophet, or excuse me, the Psalms. Psalm 45 is the first one I wanted to take you to. Psalm 45, verse 7. 
you, capitalized, this is God, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. There it is. <laughs> you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Okay, let's go over to Psalm 5. Look at verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Okay, verse 4 says God is not a God who takes pleasure. God doesn't take pleasure in wickedness. Instead, it says in verse 5, he hates all who do iniquity. Okay, now this is a difficult verse. This doesn't say that God hates the sin but loves the sinner, does it? This verse says God hates the one who sins. You hate all who do iniquity. So, I'm not sure how to work this out, but that's got to be part of our theology. Psalm 5, verse 5. God hates all who do iniquity. He destroys those who speak falsehood. The word abhors, which is a synonym for hate. He abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Now let's go over to the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 16. Proverbs 6, 16 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now these are the things that God hates, and he says they're an abomination to him. Now the word abomination refers to an object of hatred and detestation. If you hate something, or if you detest it, that thing is an abomination to you. There are certain things that are an abomination to God. Sin is abominable to God. Rebellion and wickedness and evil are abominable to God. Now, to say that God can't be tempted by evil, we know that verse from James chapter 1, don't we? God cannot be tempted by evil. That's not to say that God has the moral strength to resist all temptation. That's not what that verse is saying. In God's case, there's nothing to resist because all evil is an abomination to him and it doesn't appeal to him. It doesn't attract him. He's not allured by evil like we are. It repulses him. He hates it. It disgusts him. It, he wants as far away from it as possible, or he wants to destroy it. That's how God feels about it. So there's nothing that's going to tempt God to do that. He can't be tempted by evil because nothing allures him. No evil allures him. He's repulsed by it. And to the extent that we are holy, we will hate wickedness like God does, and we will love righteousness like God does. That makes a man a holy man or a woman of God, to love righteousness and to hate evil. So there's the meaning of God's holiness. It's an inherent freedom from all evil, and it consists of a love of righteousness and a hatred of evil. Now let's look at the display of God's holiness. Where can we see God's holiness displayed? Where can we see it? 
And I'm going to share several different places that we can actually see God's holiness. Number one, in his works. When God created the angels, all of them were originally holy, weren't they? None of them came into this world with a sinful nature or bent towards evil. They were all upright, innocent. And that's exactly the same way he created man. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So God originally created man. Adam and Eve were created upright, without sin. Not only that, but the heaven and the earth that he created was created very good. The very last thing God said after he created it all was, it was all very good. Genesis 1.31. So you see God's holiness in his creation and the works that he made and angels and men and the heavens and the earth. You also see it in his law. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he says in Romans 7 verse 12, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now why would the law be holy? Why is that the case? There's no flaw in it. It's God's product, so it can't be yes. Oh, you'd have to be perfect to keep it all, right? True. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But God's law is simply him putting it into words, a reflection of his own essential nature. God doesn't lie. God doesn't, he's not unfaithful. God honors what ought to be honored. I mean, if you go through all of the commandments of God, they're simply a reflection of who he is. And so if the law is a reflection of him and he's holy, then his law also is going to be holy. We also see God's holiness displayed in his son. Jesus Christ, in the life of Christ, the perfect life of Christ. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Isn't that an amazing statement? <laughs> no one could say that. Not most of the time. I always do the things pleasing to the Father. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus knew no sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. In other words, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones in order to bring us to God. 1 Peter 2.22 says that Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3.5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So if you want to see the holiness of God on display, look at the life of Jesus Christ, and you see it. You see what holiness looks like. You see a person who never uttered a single word that came from his mouth that was foul or profane or deceptive or lying or had an evil intention to it. You look at a man who never committed a single deed that was in any way tainted by evil, that had any evil motive associated with it. You see pure holiness in every thought, word, and deed, and motive of, of his life. For 33 years, it was a perfect life. That was Jesus Christ. You see the holiness of God in Christ. 
We also see the holiness of God in the cross of Christ. Not just his life, but in the cross. Folks, how hateful must sin be to God for him to punish sin when it was imputed to Jesus Christ? Here, his beloved son, his darling son, his loved son. But when our sins are imputed to him, he can't spare him. But he must punish that sin. That shows you that God is so holy that he can't disregard evil. He can't just turn his back on it. He, he can't sweep it under the rug and forget about it or ignore it, pretend it's not there. When he sees sin, even if the sin is upon the most beautiful, lovely person in the universe, his own son, he's got to destroy that sin by hurling his wrath upon his own son. It shows you the holiness of God in the cross. Stephen Charnock again wrote this, not all the vials of judgment that have that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of the sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures can give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose on his son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans. And I'll mention one other place we see the holiness of God. Can you guess it? We see it in hell. Because in hell, God's holiness requires that sin be punished. Not for a finite duration of time, but for an infinite duration of time. Hell is the place where God shows his eternal and utter hatred for all sin. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that the Lord Jesus is going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So God's holiness requires that there be satisfaction for evil in his world. Both Sin is simply the opposite of God. It is that which is the most contrary thing to God that can be. And so God must destroy it. He must punish it. He must, he must judge it. And that's what hell is, the judgment of all that is contrary to him. So we see God's holiness displayed in many places. But let's look at the effects of it, the results if we were to catch a vision or a sight of God's holiness, how would it affect us? And that's the question I want to ponder with you. How should it affect us? I think that we get the answer in Isaiah chapter 6, because Isaiah did get a sight of the holiness of God, and it did have profound effects in his life when he saw God's holiness. So let's go over to Isaiah 6. We're going to spend some time there. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Now we'll stop there. When was this vision taking place? In the 
year of King Uzziah's death. That's when this vision took place. Now, Uzziah was a pretty good king if you compare him to other kings of Judah. 2 Chronicles 26.4 says he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So he was generally a righteous king. So his death, the death of Uzziah, would catapult the nation into turmoil and confusion. But even though the earthly king was dead, the king of kings was very much alive. You notice that? In the year the king Uzziah died, he saw a vision of the Lord who was alive. Alive with glorious life and power. Folks, in 115 years, every single person on the face of this planet will be dead. But God will live on. God will never come to an end. God will never die, even though all of us will. In 1966, in April of 1966, Time Magazine carried one of their issues with the title, Is God Dead? And it made news all over the world at that time. But of course the answer is no. <laughs> God cannot die. That's one of the things that is impossible for God to do. It's within his essential nature to exist. So he's the one who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. He was alive when Uzziah died. He was alive when Nebuchadnezzar died. He was alive when Herod the Great died. He was alive when Alexander the Great died, or Caesar Nero died, or George Washington died, or when Hitler died. All of these men come and go. They're just men, but God lives. And Isaiah sees the vision, and he says, okay, King Uzziah is dead, but there's another king who will never die. He's the king of kings. Now, getting back to Isaiah 6, where was the Lord sitting? He saw a vision of the Lord sitting on something, right? What's he sitting on? Throne. A throne. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Folks, who sits on a throne? What kind of a person? A king. A king sits on a throne. So he's having a vision of God as king. One earthly king died, but the king of kings lives on and sits enthroned on high. And this points to God's sovereign authority. A king exercises sovereign authority, and that's what God exercises. This king, the true king, can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. And he is accountable and answerable to no one. Now, all of us are accountable to somebody. God is not accountable to us. He's not accountable to any of his creation. He's accountable to no one. He is truly sovereign over all. How does Isaiah describe the enthroned Lord here? Yes, lofty and exalted. He's sitting on a throne and he is lofty and he is exalted. That word exalted means he's lifted up on high. What is lofty? Lofty means the same kind of a thing. Lofty and exalted explain, I think, each other. They're synonyms. It's one who is lifted up very, very high. None can challenge him. He's above all. He's above all competition. There is no one like him that can come close to ever challenging him. 
And notice another description of the Lord here is that the train of his robe was filling the temple. The train of his robe. Now this is not talking about a choo-choo train. This is a different kind of train. You've, you've been to, or maybe you've seen uh, weddings of royal persons, a princess, and she will have this gorgeous gown on and a long flowing robe that will fill the chapel or whatever building she's in. This gigantically long flowing train. That's what this is talking about here. In ancient days, the clothing of royal persons was the measure of their status. You would measure the status of a royal person by the clothing that they had. And when a woman, woman marries, she wears a wedding gown. And if she is a royalty, she wears a long flowing train from that wedding gown. The longer the train, the more exalted the person. So the train of his robe reveals God's royal status. We've already seen that he's sitting on a throne. Well, the train of his robe just tells us more, that this is a royal personage. He is the king of all kings. And it points to his majesty and his greatness. So, so far, the vision shows us God's sovereign authority. It shows us his majesty, and it shows us his greatness, that there is none who can compare with him. Now, when we come to verse 2, we're introduced to a, a different kind of creature. So far, we've just seen the Lord. Verse 2 introduces us to seraphim. Interestingly, this is the only place in the Bible where the word seraphim appears. Now, we read about cherubim in other places. In fact, 67 other times we read about cherubim in the Bible. Isaiah 6 is the only time you're going to read about seraphim. The word seraph means burning one. Burning one. I think it's talking about the burning zeal of these creatures that God has made to serve him. Well, let's read about these seraphim. How does Isaiah describe them? Well, seraphim stood above him. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and above the Lord are these seraphim, standing above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. With two wings, he covered his face. Why would these seraphim cover their face? Any thoughts on that? Because they were before the Lord. So... Yes. Now, interestingly, from anything we know about these seraphim, that they're holy creatures. They have not sinned. They have not committed evil acts like we have. But yet still, they cover their face as unworthy. Perhaps also because no man can see God and live, and no angel, perhaps, <laughs> is able to see God and live in his dazzling, brilliant glory. But I think even the holy angels feel unworthy to be in the direct presence of God Almighty, so they cover their faces in his presence. With two wings, he covered his feet. Now, this is a little bit more obscure. Why would an angel, why would a seraph, and I assume that a seraph is a kind of angel, an angelic creature, why would they cover their feet? The feet are considered unclean description. Okay. Okay. So if same kind of thing that Moses had to do as well. He had to take his shoes off because you're standing on holy ground, God told him. So if the seraph cover their faces because they're unworthy to behold God. Perhaps they're covering their feet because they're unworthy to serve God. 
because the feet is what takes you, it helps you to go places to do the will of God. Maybe, maybe they, it shows them their creatureliness and that they are nothing in the sight of this majestic, glorious being called God Almighty. And then with two wings, they fly. Now, the cherubim are described as having four wings. The seraphim are described as having six wings. And with two of those wings, they're flying around. Word seraph means burning one. I think they're flying to zealously perform the will of God. And, and having two wings to fly describes their readiness and swiftness to do the will of God. So we've got these beings, these seraphim, standing above the Lord, with two wings covering their face, with two wings covering their feet, flying around, ready to do the will of God at a moment's notice when the Lord gives them direction. But that's not all that's happening. They're crying out something. Verse 3 said, one called out to another. So these seraphim are calling out to each other. Not to God, but to each other. And what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That was their message. So it was an antiphonal response. One would cry out to another seraphim, and that seraphim would cry out to the other seraphim, and then continue to cry out this message, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, why would these seraphim, why did they just say holy is the Lord? hosts. Why do they say holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts? And people have conjectured and they've speculated about that. Some people say, well, that's because it's of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all holy personages of the same Godhead. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I mean, I'm sure the Trinity is true, but I'm not sure if that's why they cried out holy, holy, holy. I do know that in the Bible, when the authors want to emphasize something very strongly, they use repetition. Now, we don't do that anymore today, not so much. If you are writing a book, and you want to emphasize something that you're writing, what are you going to do? An exclamation mark, maybe, right? What else? Maybe italicize it. Italicize it to get their attention. All caps. All caps, bold it, underline it. <laughs> you're gonna do all of those things to get people's attention, right? That's how we communicate importance. But in the Bible, the way people would emphasize something is to repeat it. Let me show you this from Galatians chapter 1. I'll show you how Paul emphasizes something. This is Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. Why does Paul go and say the same thing twice in a row? Because he wants them to get the point. This is super important, what I'm about to tell you. Even Jesus used repetition to emphasize something. He said in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who is born of water, uh, he, I'm not quoting it just right. So let me, let me go back there and read it to you. I thought I would remember it. Okay, John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Why didn't Jesus just say, truly, I say to you? Why did he say, truly, truly, 
I say to you, isn't that a little redundant? Because he's trying to emphasize the point he's about to make. And there are many statements that Jesus made, and he introduced it with the words, truly, truly. When you find one of those, take special note of it, because he's really trying to emphasize a point at that place. Now, Isaiah 6. This is the only place in the Bible, apart from Revelation 4, where a, a three times repetition is used to emphasize something. That should get our attention. And in fact, the only two times when we are permitted to see into the throne room and see God, we find angelic creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy. We have that in Revelation 4, and we have it in Isaiah 6. Visions of the throne room of God, both times, they don't just say holy is the Lord, they repeat it three times, holy, 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 to tell us that the holiness of God is something extremely important that we dare not miss. If we miss this, we're missing something crucial that we need to understand about God. Never do the angels cry out, mighty, mighty, mighty is the Lord, or wise, wise, wise is the Lord, or loving, loving, loving is the Lord. The only thing that's repeated three times is holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And if it's possible for us to elevate one of God's attributes above the rest of the attributes, this would be the one that you would want to elevate. Because this is the one that is elevated in Scripture. Someone has put it like this. If all of God's attributes were members of his body, holiness would be the spirit that animated all of those members. Because God's wisdom is holy wisdom. His faithfulness is holy faithfulness. His grace is holy grace. Every other attribute is filled and animated by this quality of holiness because it, it, it exudes God's nature and flows into every part of his actions and his being. Today, I think we have an overemphasis on the love of God and an underemphasis on the holiness of God. Now, we need to emphasize the love of God. And it's true, God is love. But that's not all that God is. And if we overemphasize one attribute and underemphasize another, we get a distorted picture of the God of the Bible. And God wants us to know him in his fullness, not just one slim aspect of who he is. So I, I really think that the holiness of God is that attribute of God that we need to recover and think about deeply. Now, let's go back to Isaiah 6. What signs accompanied the angel's cry? It says, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, which is the voice of the seraphim, while the temple was filling with smoke. So you've got this temple, and you've got the thresholds shaking, and you've got smoke filling up that temple. All of those signs would tell you that the person sitting on that throne is like no other. He's incomparable in, in majesty and greatness. And those signs would inspire awe of the person sitting on the throne. Now, we finally get to the point where we really need to see and we really need to consider. How did Isaiah respond to this revelation of God? He saw the Lord as holy, what did that do in his life? 
Look at verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw God in his sovereign majesty and in, in his holiness, and it had a profound effect on his life. The first thing he says is, woe is me. The word woe is a word used to express grief, distress, or regret. In its noun form, it means a condition of deep suffering from misfortune, affliction, or grief. So this revelation that Isaiah had brought deep distress upon himself. When he said, woe is me, he was pronouncing judgment on himself. See, when he said, woe is me, it was another way of saying, curse them. I'm under a divine curse. I see myself as under divine judgment right now because I see God's holiness. And as you see God's holiness, you, you must start comparing yourself to that standard of absolute spotless perfection and you see so many defects in your own life, right? And he says, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. The King James says, I am undone. The ESV says, I am lost. The New Living Translation says, I am doomed. That's what Isaiah was saying. I am doomed. I'm under judgment. I'm cursed because I see God in His holiness and I'm nothing like Him. So I hope you're starting to get the picture of what's happening to Isaiah. Isaiah was literally coming apart at the seams. He was undone. He was being unraveled. Picture a guy who has a roll of toilet paper, and he rolls that roll of toilet paper down the street, and the toilet paper roll comes unraveled. That's what's happening, happening on the inside of Isaiah right now. He's coming apart. He's unraveling. Uh, modern psychologists talk about personal disintegration. So to integrate something is to take two or more pieces and put them together as one whole. That's to integrate it. Disintegration is to take one whole and split it apart. And Isaiah's coming apart here. Now, that's interesting because his contemporaries would have said he's a man of integrity. If they looked at Isaiah, they would have said he's one of the most righteous men of our generation. He's a prophet of God. To have integrity means that your actions line up with what you confess to be true. And Isaiah lived out his, his obedience to God. He was a man of integrity in the eyes of other people. But when he saw God, all of that went out the window and he started coming undone and unraveling before him, before himself. In a brief second, he was shattered, he was exposed, he was made naked before the gaze of absolute holiness. As long as he compared himself to others, he could have a lofty opinion of himself. But as soon, the instant he compared himself to God, he was morally destroyed. He was spiritually annihilated. God showed him his corruption all at once, and he was ruined. He was doomed. 
he was undone. Matthew Henry once wrote this, No attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than his holiness. And Isaiah was a believer, and it was dreadful to him. He goes on, and he says, I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. That's why I'm undone. The very first thing Isaiah thought about when he saw God's holiness and he compared himself to God was his speech, the words that he had uttered. And he says they're unclean. I don't know if Isaiah was thinking about profanity or lying or deception or, or what, but his speech line was the very first thing that came to mind. Now, of course, Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it wasn't just his speech. His heart and his speech would be indicted here. What a contrast to Isaiah's speech to the seraphim's speech, who day and night cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Their speech is constantly praising God and giving thanks. And it wasn't just Isaiah's speech. But it was the people of his generation. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. It's not just me, it's everybody else I know. We're all committing sins with speech. He counted himself a leper in the midst of a leprous world, or a polluted man in the midst of a polluted world. He saw how much corruption there was all around him when he saw God's holiness. How did the Lord respond to Isaiah's distress? Notice verse 6. God was actually very, very gracious to him. He was coming undone. He counted himself doomed. He saw himself as a gross, wicked sinner, vile on the side of God. So what does God do? He forgives him. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar, notice that, with tongs, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. He said, I'm unclean because of my speech. So God takes the burning coals from the altar to touch his lips, which was the corrupt part of the thing that he was so very aware was uncorrupt. Those burning coals touched his lips, and that his sins were forgiven. Now think about this. Isaiah's iniquity was taken away, and his sin was forgiven because something from the altar made contact with him. Now what else took place on the altar? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Sacrifice for sin was constantly being offered on that brazen altar. I believe this is a picture, and it's pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There can be no forgiveness of sins apart from what Christ did on the cross. So a burning coal was taken from that altar. How would you like to experience a burning coal being placed against your lips? I think that teaches us something about forgiveness, that there's some pain that accompanies forgiveness. Not all joy. There's some pain as well. 
I'm going to conclude our message today by, by just pointing out some of the effects of a vision of the holiness of God and how it should affect our lives. Number one, conviction of sin and repentance toward God. That's what we're seeing happening in Isaiah's life. There's a deep conviction of sin, and I believe a repentance that's taking place. Think of the excruciating pain of having a burning, a red-hot coal placed against those lips. You can't even imagine. Well, that's kind of like what it must have felt for Isaiah when he saw God in his holiness and he saw how sinful he was in comparison. It was painful. His soul was pained because he was not like the God who had saved him. Conviction of sin hurts. Repentance is painful. It's called godly sorrow. Sorrow is painful. No one goes through sorrow without experiencing some soul pain. So conviction of sin and repentance toward God are part of seeing the holiness of God. As long as you can just keep the holiness of God away from your mind, you can go through life carefree. But once you see God in his holiness, you're going to experience some pain. Secondly, a vision of the holiness of God should give us a hatred for sin. I say that because when Paul wrote to the Romans, he says in Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And Romans 12, 9, is in, it's a command. Abhor, it's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's a command to all Christians to abhor, to hate. We're being commanded to hate what is evil. Deuteronomy 7, 25 and 26 says this, The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it, and you shall utterly abhor it. For it is something banned. There are certain things God commands us to utterly detest and to abhor. Anything that is contrary to God, we are to detest and to abhor. And it is to be an abomination, not only to God, but to us. If we confess ourselves to be followers of the true and living God, we must partake of his nature. His nature is to abhor it and to detest it. That's the second result that God's holiness should have in our life. And as we're working through these, just ask yourself, okay, do I experience conviction of sin, repentance toward God? Do I experience a hatred of evil? Here's the third one. It should result in the worship of God. And I, I get that from Revelation 4, which is another glimpse of the throne room of God. And I'm just going to read this to you, verses 8 through 10. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, okay, so they never stop. These creatures never do anything else but this. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, 
to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Worship is the result of seeing God as holy. Holy, holy, holy. 24 elders, they fall down on their faces. They take their crowns off and they throw them before the throne. The Bible talks about thrones that believers will receive. But we're going to be anxious to take them off of our heads. And, okay. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, crowns. Take off our crowns and throw our crowns at the throne. Before the throne of the one who deserves those crowns. See, worship is a result of seeing God in his holiness. Not only does it create the pain of conviction and repentance, not only does it give us a hatred of sin, but it produces the blessed fruit of true worship, spiritual worship in our life, where our heart is lifted up to see him as he is. Number four, another result of seeing God in his holiness is that we would ourselves pursue holiness, to be like our God. First Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So we, when we see God in His blazing holiness, not only does it produce conviction, repentance, and worship, but it causes us to pursue a holy character that we might emulate that we might reflect the true nature of God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Unholy people will not see the Lord. We're not talking about absolute holiness. Only God is absolutely holy. But as a Christian, you must have a measure of holiness if you expect to see the Lord. That's not negotiable. It's not optional. It's not... You can't say, well, I'm just a carnal Christian. I'm going to live in sin my whole life. No, you're not a Christian unless there's some measure of holiness in your life. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and the Holy Spirit will produce holiness in you. He will. Now, not perfectly, but he will do it. Or else perhaps you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, my friend. So there's this pursuit of holiness that comes as a result of seeing God in his holiness. And then number five. If we see God as holy, it should produce a resignation to the will of God. That we would resign ourselves to the will of God. I, I take that from the book of Job. Job is a really good example for us. His wealth was wiped out. All of his children were killed. But this is how he responds. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose... He tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. So all of these are expressions of grief. As a human who loved his children, he was filled with grief and distress. He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He resigned himself to the will of God and he worshipped. 
See, if we see that everything that God does is perfect and holy, that God cannot do anything that is unholy, that God has a reason for all that he allows in this world, when we murmur and complain, we're sinning against God. Because God in his providence has allowed these things to take place. And he's doing them because he has purposes in mind. 10,000 purposes for all that he does. We don't know them. We can't see them. That's where faith comes in and trusting comes in. But if you see God as holy, it should cause you to bow to the ground and worship. And not blame God, but adore him as good and as holy. Even when you don't know the answers to your questions. I think that's one of the main things that I love about this book of Job is we see such a stellar character in this man. Those are the responses I see from a Christian, a Christian's view of the holiness of God. If you're not a Christian, there's one result that you need to have, and that's to look away from yourself to Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, God's holiness ought to fill you with dread and fear because you are not holy. And you're going to be judged by God's standard of perfection. A.W. Pink wrote this, A fallen creature could sooner create a world than produce that which would meet the approval of infinite purity. So true. If you're not a Christian, you are never going to be approved by God on based on something that you do, your efforts or works, it'll never happen. The best that a sinful man can bring to God is defiled. And so he has to look away from himself to Jesus Christ. And that's what salvation is. Looking away from ourselves and our doings, what we can bring to God, looking away from that, fixing our faith and our trust and our hope completely on Jesus Christ and his perfect work on our behalf. And in the moment you look away from yourself and fix your hope completely on Christ, you are saved. You're like the Israelites in the wilderness. They were bitten by the fiery serpents and some were dying. God told Moses to erect this bronze serpent and put the serpent on a pole and lift it up. And all who looked to the serpent on the pole were healed the very instant they looked. And the instant that you or I look to Jesus Christ, we're saved. When our faith moves away from us, fastens on him, God saves us. I pray that God would give us all a vision of his holiness. That's what we need. And I pray that he'd produce the results that we've seen in the scriptures today. Conviction, repentance, hatred of sin, worship of God, resignation to the will of God. Lord, would you please do what only you can do? We, we can't cause ourselves, Lord, to see more clearly your holiness, but you can open up our eyes and you can show it to us. We need to know it greater, Lord. We need to be aware of it day by day. So easy for us just to turn a blind eye to your holiness and go in our own way. We pray, Lord, that you would not allow that. Lord, in your mercy, you would help us to see you as you are and that you would give us grace, Lord, to pursue holiness every day. We pray that your spirit would be working in us to transform us from one degree of glory to the other. In Jesus' name.